Welcome to This is the Jet Life with Dan Burnham, your guide to the New York Jets sports and much more. And now, your host, Dan Burnham. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This is the Jet Life. This is the first of the off-season scheduled episodes coming every other week, and over the past 14 days, I think since January 5th was the last episode, a ton has happened. We've got some rumors circulating around the team. We've got some coaching changes going on. We've seen Justin Fields play again. We're prepping for the draft. Our draft order is a little bit more set than it was before, and we still got to do our season recap of the team, give out our awards. We've been doing offensive, defensive, special teams, players of the game all year, even doghouse. It's time to start giving out the final awards. And see where this team ranked. I mean, we know the team was bad. 2-14, second worst record in the league. But how about the players? Where'd they end up? Some of them had some pretty good seasons, to be honest. No pro bowlers, but some pretty good seasons in there. So I got a really good father time, some other good fun stuff coming up. A lot to get to, but before we do that, I need to remind you to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. It is under the Gang Green Nation podcast series title, This Is The Jet Life. And I'm serious, any like and rate and review all that stuff is super helpful that is what keeps the engagement going that is what keeps you know the uh, powers that be ahead of me pleased and happy and helps the whole brand and, and podcast grow so i appreciate all that also engagement on twitter my handle is at jets underscore dan some of you may have been enjoying my free agent previews for each of the playoff matchups Perhaps not. It's a lot of information. Just going through a list of notable free agents. I told you guys I was going to do it, and I did it for each game over the uh, wild card weekend. I've been slowing down now because at this point, I've basically covered every single team that's in the playoffs. You can go back and find the old tweets if you are curious as you're watching one of these games. You know, who is an upcoming free agent from one of these teams? A lot of good stuff to get to. So where to begin? We will begin with the draft upcoming because we've got a little bit more clarity on when we're actually going to be picking. The Jets, as we know, finished with the number two overall pick. But the, the second question was going to be, what are we going to get in terms of that Seahawks pick? We traded Jamal Adams for two first-round picks from the Seahawks this year and next year, as well as some other stuff. But the main one was this year's first-round pick. And the Seattle Seahawks made the playoffs, and you know, had they won the Super Bowl, that pick would have turned into number 32 overall, which would have been basically a second-round pick really late. They ended up losing first round to the Rams, a kind of banged up Rams team. And the Jets finished with the 23rd overall pick in the draft. 23 is about as good as you could possibly hope for going into the playoffs with the record that the Seahawks had. 23 is almost near, it's closer to the middle of the draft than it is the very end of the draft round. I mean, that's great news. Jamal Adams, you know, he went over there to go win, try to find some success with the Seahawks before he gets his new contract. He missed some games this year. Team gets bounced first week of the playoffs. So while he did taste the playoffs, he did not taste anything good about them. Just the work, the prep, and the defeat that comes with being in the playoffs and losing. The Jets get that 23rd overall pick. That's a really nice thing to have. And then after that, that second round pick is going to be number 34. They've got two third round picks this year, 66 and 86. So you're talking about five picks in the top 86, which is going to be extremely helpful. I think that draft picks now are worth more than they were before because we were so used to Mike McCagden and John Idzik and even some of the uh, the old Mike Tannenbaum bad drafts. Primarily, McCagden and Idzik were really bad. We got used to, like, 
drafts aren't that helpful. You know, you get one, maybe two guys in a draft, probably not any stars. I think what we saw from Joe Douglas's first draft is that he does it differently. He's better at scouting. He's better at making the decisions on who to get and even manipulating the draft board within the process. And so having these picks is going to be extremely beneficial, and it means more because they're in the hands of somebody who actually knows what to do with them. Now, there's going to be some compensatory picks and things given out. Um, The league does that for whether you lost free agents, whether minority hires were hired, things like that. There's going to be a ton of stuff that's going to change the later pick, so it's just projections right now, but we're projecting something like a fourth-round pick at number 103, fifth-round pick 142, another fifth-round pick at 151, and a sixth-round pick at 193. The Jets do not have a seventh-round pick this year, but they do have nine picks in the first 193. So it's just really a ton of capital, a ton of wiggle room to help build this team. As we know, we need improvements across the board. There's a lot of positions that we need. When you have draft picks, it makes it a lot easier because not only can you get young players that are young and, you know, the guys that you want because you're choosing them, but they're getting rookie contracts. They're not getting paid as much as free agents, so you save some money there as well. That's going to be really good. One of the guys that we're looking at with that number two pick potentially is quarterback Justin Fields, and the last time we had a podcast, we discussed the upcoming college football championship game against Alabama. Now, the week before, Clemson and Ohio State battled it out, and Justin Fields had an amazing game, came back injured through six touchdown passes, was quick, and looked like a guy that we would want to have. I said that I couldn't wait to see them play against Alabama, one of the hardest teams you could possibly imagine playing at any college football level over the years. Great defense. How would he do on that big stage? And unfortunately, he didn't look all that special. And as excited as I was leaving the Clemson game, I was left with that same confusion and murkiness about Justin Fields leaving the Alabama game. It's not that he played horrible because he didn't, but it was just seeing him not as composed. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of what a guy looks like when he's frustrated, confused, can't find guys open. And, you know, he wasn't able to just put the game on his back the way that you'd hope that he'd be able to. It's only going to get harder at the NFL level. There'll be more coaching. He'll have better players around him. But reading those defenses and stuff, it just didn't leave me saying to myself like, damn, that's our guy right there. So we're going to have to see what else we want to do with that. That second-round pick at this point could be an amazing wide receiver, a great offensive tackle. It could be a quarterback in Justin Fields, Trey Lance, or even uh, Zach Wilson. Or it could be a trade-back scenario, which I think would make a ton of sense as well, just accumulating picks, getting more, and then adding some players because we still need so many across the board. Now, aside from the draft, the Jets are going to have a lot of room in free agency, and right now as the season ends, we are projected, based off of a $175 million cap, $63 million in cap space, which is the second most in the league only to the Jacksonville Jaguars. That $175 million cap could potentially be 180 It's been rumored this week that it could be 180 but it's somewhere in that 175 to 180 range. You notice that's a big drop from this 2020 season where the salary cap was $198 million. And that was a $10 million increase from 2019, where it was $188 million. And so we're going to have the lowest salary cap that we've had in a few years. It's going to take potentially about a $25 million dip. And people are pretty used to it going up $10 million per year. So you're talking about a potential $35 million swing from your financial advisor's, you know, projections over the course of the years. We were not expecting the pandemic. And so people were starting to allocate funds for the future. Okay, this is what we'll do. This is putting teams in a very tricky situation where all of a sudden they don't have enough, perhaps, money to even pay for the players they already have on their team. Look at a team like the Saints. They're going to be projected $75 to $100 million over the cap before they do cuts and extensions and restructures. 
I mean, you've got a lot of work to do. There's going to be a lot of cuts from a lot of teams, and you're going to have cap casualties because you've got to get under that cap before a certain date. Now, the Jets, with all this money that they have, the second most in the league, they're actually going to be flush with cash, and they're going to need to spend it. So while other teams are trying to get rid of players because they can't afford them, there's going to be more players on the market. There's going to be few people with money to pay, and the contracts, because of the smaller salary cap, are actually going to be smaller than they've been. So this is putting the Jets at a very advantageous position, and it's going to be super helpful for Joe Douglas to navigate because we've seen him kind of take a very tentative and slow approach in free agency in his first year. A lot of small contracts, a lot of one-year deals, nothing too blockbuster. But this year, he is going to have a ton of assets at his disposal. I mean, for crying out loud, he's even got a quarterback that people are saying he could trade. This guy's got money, he's got draft picks, and we got a new coach. So it is time to talk about the biggest news that happened this week. The New York Jets have officially hired, wait for it, Robert Sala, defensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers. Absolute superstar, hotshot, young DC, coming over to the New York Jets to instill culture, values, positivity, inspiration, and all the good stuff that you're looking for in a leader. Robert Sala, officially today, signed and is the New York Jets head coach. And this was an amazing hire by Joe Douglas. Just another example of him doing his job right. Now, it's no secret that over the past couple weeks in podcast episodes, I have claimed or said that Robert Sala is the best coaching candidate for the Jets. I've been talking about it. He's been number one on my list every single time I go through it. And why? Because as I've said, he is a leader of men. He's a guy that commands a room, listens to you, and understands you. He doesn't yell at you. He yells, you know, to you. But he's got an aggressive, high-energy, positivity nature that we just haven't had from a coach. We've had so many coaches, it seems like, you know, since Herm Edwards and Rex Ryan. Those are the two guys that have fiery personalities. Herm was great, of course. The team didn't win all that much. He wasn't uh, reinventing the wheel, really. Rex Ryan was just kind of obnoxious. This guy's just a good, wholesome, positive, in-your-corner-you-can-do-it kind of guy. And he's got really good football ideas and a great mind. He's had a great defense over there in the 49ers. And we got to be happy to have him. There was nobody better on the market. The Jets said they were looking for a CEO type of coach, a coach that can coach the offense and the defense, not just stand there with a clipboard, a la Adam Gase, not just stand there befuddled like a Todd Bowles. Really coaching the team, getting out there, watching the game, seeing what happens. Not just being present for half of it, the phase of the game that you're most involved with as a coordinator. Now, the Jets haven't yet worked on their defensive coordinating staff, but I imagine that he is going to be coaching more than calling plays because that's the kind of guy that he is. And everybody respects him. You've got praise coming from everybody from the 49ers. Nobody's pissed off or bitter or angry that the Jets took him. Everybody's like, he deserves it. Robert Sala is a hell of a coach, and you guys are lucky to have him. We hope he succeeds. Good luck to you guys. And that's what you want to hear because we got a guy who every single team in the league was interviewing. Everybody wanted, you had some legislature, Congress, whatever from Detroit trying to get him to go in and be their head coach. And people are calling like, we want Salah. And the Jets got him. And it sounds like he actually wanted to be their coach. He looked at the Jets and thought that that was, this is the job to get. Working with Joe Douglas, that's who you want to work with. All the assets and value that we have, the young pieces that we have, the Beckton's and Quinnen. This is what you want. And he chose the Jets. And so for the first time in what seems like a lifetime, the Jets are going to have a positive in-your-corner coach who is going to literally live and breathe the culture that J.D. has been 
describing for years, for a year and a half now, saying we want to have the best culture in sports. This is the guy that can do that. And so Robert Sala, absolute A-plus hire. I could not be happier about it. Of course, there's a ton of work to be done still. We haven't won any games. We're coming off a 2-14 and season with a pretty bad roster overall. A lot of decisions have to be made. But it sounds like him and Joe Douglas have the same vision. They're going to be working towards it together, and I honestly think it's going to be a really good one. So I am so pleased to have those two guys at the top of this organization. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And so there was some other news like coming out too. There were some other coaches that we were interviewing, and at one point during this whole process, Doug Peterson was fired from the Eagles because why fire him when the season ends like everybody else and get your interviews underway? Let's just wait a week and a half. That's just such a like a Jets thing to do for the Eagles. We're going to wait until everybody's conducting their interviews and then fire our coach afterwards. And so they fired Doug Peterson, and he's got connections to Joe Douglas because they were both in Philadelphia. And instantly, like everybody's like, oh, my God, this is potentially a Jets hire. And you're like, no, please, no. And you got so nervous. But Joe Douglas didn't even entertain the idea, really. He went with a guy that he doesn't know, a guy that interviewed best, and a guy that was best suited for the job. Didn't go with his buddy. And that was awesome to see. So Robert Sala, we mentioned he hasn't put together a defensive staff yet, hasn't really put together a special team staff yet, but he has started to put together an offensive staff. What that means is he took over um, as head coach and then gets to pick everybody that comes with him. Starting with the offense, he got offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur, who is Matt LaFleur, the head coach of the Packers' little brother. The 49ers passing game coordinator Mike LaFleur will be coming to be our OC. So what we're going to see is a lot of 49ers-style offense. What that means is short passes, uh, quick passes. It's going to be a lot of, you know, maybe lateral plays along the line of scrimmage, how they run Debo Samuel. They run their wide receivers. They try to get outside. You know, they spread the teams out, screen passes and things like that. We're going to probably do a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, pound the rock. They're known for doing that as well. It's not the flashiest home run style offense like the Chiefs or something, but it's a it can be dynamic and it keeps teams guessing and it's very creative and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's going to get a lot of guys involved. And the Jets are going to have to get some playmakers to run on this offense. So Mike LaFleur will be the OC, and I think that that's a good hire. Everybody praised him as well in uh, San Francisco. And, of course, he's got the relationship with Matt LaFleur, so he's been doing this. It's in his blood and genes. We got a new offensive line running game coordinator. That's John Benton, who was the 49ers offensive line coach and has been around the league for much time. He was the offensive line coach for the Texans back in the day with, like, Arian Foster. And so he's put together some good old lines. He knows what he's doing. He's an established veteran. We got a new quarterback coach. What? Quarterback coach? The Jets haven't had one of those. Well, we got one, finally. A team that didn't have a quarterback coach with a quarterback problem and a young guy crazy. Robert Sala instantly is like, well, we need to get one of these. Greg Knapp, the Falcons quarterback's coach, who's been working with Matt Ryan for a couple of years now. He's going to bring some of that over to the Jets, be it Sam Darnold or whatever quarterback we have in place there. But at least we've got a guy, one who's worked with somebody good like Matt Ryan, but somebody's going to be coaching you and developing you as the season goes on, not just watching you flounder. We got Tyler Taylor Embry is our new running backs coach. He's a young guy who was working with uh, Colorado as their tight ends coach. He's been around uh, the college game more. He's still super young, so he's kind of like one of those young, up-and-coming, potential hotshot candidates, you know, getting his chance as the running backs coach. We got former Dallas Cowboy receiver Miles Offense, <laughs> Miles Austin, to come in and do the wide receivers coaching. So he's replacing Sean Jefferson. Miles Austin will be the wide receivers coach. He was a 49ers 
offensive quality control coach. If you've caught a theme here, it's that we are stealing a ton of people from the 49ers, which is just kind of how it goes. And you hire a head coach usually likes to bring some people that he knows, not all of them. You know, Greg Knapp, the quarterback's coach, is coming from the Falcons. We also got a passing game specialist coming from the Broncos, Rob Calabrese. He was the Broncos' offensive quality control coach, and he's going to be coming over to be the passing game coordinator. And that's just another part of the team, just like another dynamic thing. Instead of having an OC in Dowell Loggins and a head coach in Adam Gase, who's got his hands way too much in the offense, we've got a quarterback's coach, a passing game coordinator, and an offensive coordinator. We've got a good think tank of people, different views, different ideas. They're going to try to make each other better and make this offense better. So I love it. And I talked about how there's a lot of 49ers here. Expect a lot of free agent 49ers to sign with the Jets. Not all of them, but three, four guys coming over from the 49ers would not be a surprise to me. And they've got like 20-something free agents right now. they got a ton of them. Some of them are good. You know, some of them are bigger names like um, Kyle Juszczyk or... Kerry Hyder, even Richard Sherman's a free agent, and then some other ones. Some are some smaller-named guys, but uh, there's definitely going to be a few of them coming over here to help work on that 49er-style you know, defense identity, offense identity, stuff that we're installing, some people that can help the process along. So that is our new coaching staff. I love it, super happy with it. Um, one thing that we don't know, and I said we were going to talk about, is where the hell is Dawa Loggins? Has he been officially fired yet or removed? I think it's kind of odd to be hiring people to spots that are already filled. So that probably didn't happen. He probably has been fired. I guess they just sent him walking. No goodbye. Jets Twitter didn't say thank you for your service, Dowell. Way to be. Way to hang in there. Chan- handle the challenge flag. He just kind of is uh, going to disappear into the wind. Who knows where he'll end up. There's actually rumors right now that Adam Gase is potentially the number one candidate to be the Seahawks offensive coordinator. I mean, if you're trying to get Frank Gore to pound the rock for your team, yeah, hire Adam Gase, but I just can't believe that that guy would be considered to be the offensive coordinator of any team after having the offense that we had last year. And how funny would that be for him to go reunite with Jamal Adams, who tried to get away from this team? That would just be a a good thing. You know what? It's actually a great thing because it would drive Jamal Adams crazy. And most importantly, we have the Seahawks' first-round pick next year, and Adam Gase will put together a horrible, abysmal offense, most likely. Unless Russell Wilson audibles out of all the plays Gase calls and just does his own thing, it's going to be a mess. We'd love that. Imagine that that Seahawks pick next year turns into, like, a seventh overall pick because Adam Gase leads that team to a four-win record. That would be incredible. Um, so we'll keep our eyes on that as time goes on as well. Now, the next order of business is going to be a quick... Father time. Hasman had to do a father time this week. I said, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're doing a season recap. Robert Sala's been hired since the last episode. There's plenty of stuff that you can get into. Whatever you want to do, I don't care. Take it. Wait till you hear what my dad, David Burnham, has to say. This is called Houston, We Have a Problem. Father time by my dad, David Burnham. Great news. The Jets now have a general manager, head coach, Robert Sala, offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur, and most of the offensive side of the staff in line. It is very difficult to find a Jet fan that doesn't love the moves that have been made this offseason so far. A lot has been done in the last weeks, and the future seems to get brighter by the day. Things have moved fast. Now a big decision is on the horizon for Joe Douglas. The dysfunction in Houston is at a breaking point, and the Texans are getting ready 
to move a rightfully disgruntled Deshaun Watson. Watson is really good. He can put a team on his back, and he can win games. He knows how to win. And the Jets can have Deshaun Watson if they want him. They have the cap space, and they have the picks to trade. But do we want Deshaun Watson? A team is always balancing money, talent, and contracts, so here are some of the pros and cons. The pros. He's 25-year-old, Pro Bowl quarterback, a known commodity, and NFL tested. He moves well, throws well, leads well, and could be the Jets quarterback for a decade. I expect that he would have the Jets in the playoffs in two years, and he can play in big games. Bottom line, Deshaun Watson can make the Jets a better team starting from 2021 Game 1. The cons? He'll cost a lot. His contract is about $40 million per year, or 21% of the team's current cap space. So we would lose a couple of free agents with the Watson addition just by subtracting his contract from the cap. We will also lose a lot of draft capital, probably two first-round picks plus at least a second. That's giving up to three premium players on a cheap rookie contract, plus veteran free agents filling starting holes across the roster. That is a real lot. So, battle-tested Watson at quarterback and fewer picks, fewer free agents, and less cap space going forward. Or, keep our picks, grab the free agents, and fill the roster with a different quarterback, Sam or a rookie. It's It's a balancing act, and I personally cannot choose it this time. There aren't many teams that have the picks and cap space that Joe Douglas has created for the Jets, so there aren't too many suitors. My advice is for Joe to wait, let the price drop, and hold his cards close to the vest. The Texans are under stress, and that is our advantage. The Jets are in no rush. There is no bad outcome to this opportunity, and that is the good news, as Joe is holding the cards. Go Jets. End scene. Wow. So that is a lot to unpack here. That brings us to our next talking point, Deshaun Watson, and the rumors that Deshaun Watson could be moved and potentially interested in coming to the Jets or really any other team that will take him and put a better team around him than the Texans have, which is basically any team. My dad goes right into it. That's what he wants to talk about. At this point, he said, feels like the Robert Sala news is a little stale. This is the hot thing right now, and everybody's talking about, should the Jets go after Deshaun Watson? You've got a ton of different viewpoints. The one viewpoint that is absolutely incorrect is the Jets need to do whatever it takes to get Deshaun Watson. That is ludicrous. You can't do whatever it takes. There has to be a line where you say, we aren't crossing this. We can't give them 53 players, Mekhi Becton, Quinn Williams, every single person, just to get Deshaun Watson and have him with a bunch of practice squad players. There is a line somewhere. The question is, what are you willing to give up? My dad raises some really good points in this whole thing that he's an established player, and he will come in right away and be great for the Jets. He'd be the best quarterback that we've had since Joe Namath. Basically, hands down. Be better than Vinny, Chad, Mark, any of those guys. But he's had some knee problems. He has been injured before. And he costs so much money, and you're giving up so much to get him. I mean, the Jets right now are at the very beginning of a rebuild. Do you want to spend everything at the beginning of your rebuild? You finally get your picks together, your money in order and then give a lot of it away? I mean, he made a great point in the fact that the $40 million you pay for Watson versus the rookie contract, say $12 million for a rookie quarterback, the net $28 million difference is probably two elite free agents, plus you're giving away two, three, four draft picks that could end up being starters, potentially six starters away for one quarterback. If you give up too much and you mortgage the farm, you end up being the Texans. You have a bad team with no draft picks, and Deshaun Watson scrambling for his life waiting to get injured. We can't do that. The Jets need to have a better team. And if they can do it for cheap, 
then they need to make this deal because Deshaun Watson is, as much as I love Sam, he's better than Sam. He's better than Fields. He's better than Trey Lance or Zach Wilson. He's better than Trevor Lawrence at this point as well. So if you can do it for cheap, you got to do it. But you can't give everything away. And, you know, my dad's right because we are sitting at a point where we have all of the cards. Because worst-case scenario, Deshaun Watson stays in Houston or goes somewhere else, as long as it's not the Dolphins or the Patriots, which I guess is possible. I mean, no harm, no foul. He goes to another team in the AFC or NFC. The Jets keep all their stuff, and right back where we were. Nothing's changed. Best-case scenario, the Jets can get Deshaun Watson for cheap. Worst-case scenario is the Jets mortgage everything. They lose out on the ability to build a good team, and they put Deshaun Watson behind a bad team, and we don't have the ability or the money or the draft picks to get out of it quickly. That's not what we want to do. Not in a rebuild. So we need to kind of sit tight, as he's saying. You can't trade until, like, March or something. There's a specific date where the trading can open. It is not right now. And as of right now, Deshaun Watson hasn't even technically asked for a trade, hasn't demanded a trade, hasn't really been talking to the team at all. And so it's all speculation right now. Frankly, as a Jets fan, you kind of like feel sick just seeing it because the media from Houston is just like destroying this man and his career. We don't know. I mean, maybe he wants out and maybe he started this whole thing. That's you know 80% likely. There's that 20% chance where he's like just doing his thing and he's really pissed off with the way the team is hiring coaches and general managers and this Jack Easterby figure hates it all and is like, you know, I got to stand my ground and be silent and make them squirm a little bit so that they can kind of understand just how bad my situation is here and that I don't have to be here if I don't want to. But the media is just playing into it so much. And it just reminds you of like, you know, Quinn and Williams is on the trading block and the Jets are shopping Marcus May and they were talking about doing that with Jamal Adams. And while it didn't negatively really affect Quinn or Marcus May, I mean, it ate Jamal Adams alive and potentially led to his downfall. And the reason that he wanted to get out of here to begin with, I think it was a good trade at the end of the day because we're getting these draft picks. And who knows, those draft picks could end up being Deshaun Watson. It could end up being some, you know, Jamal Adams for Deshaun Watson trade, which is crazy. But, I mean, we really have to see. We really have to see. And if he really does demand a trade and he really truly wants to get out of there, and they have to find suitors, and they need somebody that can swallow a $40 million contract at the blink of an eye and have the draft capital to actually get this player, then the Jets are one of the few teams that can actually do that comfortably. We'll see what happens. That is a very interesting one. I appreciate it, Dad. Thank you for leading that topic of uh, Deshaun Watson and all the rumors that are circulating right now. we got some time to figure it out, but... Uh, I'm sure there will be no shortage of storylines and news alerts about just random, you know, oh, Deshaun Watson was wearing a Buccaneers jersey 14 years ago. Is it possible that he's always been trying to go there? It's like, okay, relax, everybody. This is not breaking news. But that is this week's Father Time. Again, thank you, Dad. Before we move on to the next section, we got to take a quick commercial. All righty, everybody. Welcome back to This is the Jet Life. We are going to talk about the Jets and their finish to this season. We're going to break down their offense, defense, give out our awards. I want to quickly preview the playoffs. Is that still going on right now? We got two games left. We are in the NFL championships, NFC championship and AFC championship game. The two winners will play in the Super Bowl, and that's it. Football's over. We got three more games. There's not even a Pro Bowl this year because of COVID. So we got three more football games. Super sad, but we got a nice game. 305 on Sunday, Buccaneers versus Packers. Aaron Rodgers is the clear MVP favorite right now, going up against the old Patriot enemy, Tom Brady, who's back in the playoffs again, fighting for another Super Bowl again. 
And this is kind of a, a cool battle. You know, Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady will be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. So they're going to have a big, fiery, headlining name on that side. Then at 640, same day, Bills at Chiefs. And this one's interesting because Bills, division rival, have had like this meteoric rise with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. And it's like, what the heck is going on? This is our division rival who was basically trying to build a team the exact same way as us, putting together good pieces, drafting a quarterback, having a stout defense, and then bringing in one or two last pieces for the finishing touch. And they did it in three years, and now they're potentially a game away from the Super Bowl. We don't want that to happen. They are division rivals. As bad as they've been, they've never won a Super Bowl, but there's no reason for them to have as many as us because they're the Bills, we're the Jets. We are historically just cooler. Just stay that way. We don't want to be the worst team ever. They're playing the Chiefs. They should get obliterated, right? They should probably lose a matchup to Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. The Chiefs, as good as the Bills are, the Chiefs are the best team in the league. On paper, they're the defending champions. And, I mean, with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, Tyreek Hill, and Travis Kelsey, that's almost enough to put up 40 points any week. But the Bills may be playing a Chiefs team that doesn't have Patrick Mahomes. What? Who would be playing? Ex-Dolphins quarterback Chad Henney. Are you kidding me right now? Chad Henney could be starting in the championship game against the Bills to allow the Bills to go to the Super Bowl? It's ridiculous. Patrick Mahomes is in concussion protocol. We don't know if he had a concussion or not. We know that he is in concussion protocol, which basically there's like five steps he's got to pass. He's got to start doing some light practicing and stuff. But the big thing is they do, before the season starts, baseline testing of each player to like see not like what their IQ is, but where their baseline thinking levels are and their patterns, and then when you get a concussion or anything that looks like or close to head trauma or something that could resemble a concussion, you have to be able to pass those exact same tests with the similar baseline numbers as you had previous in the year. That way they know that you're kind of at the same point mentally as you were then. You haven't suffered any damage. So we don't know what the scoop is with that. Once you complete that, then you can start practicing lightly, jogging around and stuff, and then you could eventually get cleared for contact. So there's a lot of steps that he has to take. He's only got like five days to do it. It's not going to be easy, and if Chad Henney plays, it could be a disaster game for the Chiefs, allowing the Bills to go. Imagine if it's Tom Brady versus Josh Allen and the Bills for the playoffs, or for the Super Bowl. How insane would that be? Or one of the, you got to root for one of those teams? Like, I, don't put us in that position. We need the Packers to win, first and foremost, because Aaron Rodgers winning the Super Bowl, totally cool. First and foremost, they need to win, and we need to get Patrick Mahomes healthy. At this point, the best Super Bowl I can imagine, Packers versus Chiefs, something that I could have predicted you know, six, seven, eight, nine weeks ago, both those teams have been great all year, deserve to be there. So that is the NFL playoffs coming up this weekend on Sunday. Now let's move over to our New York Jets, our poor, pathetic 2-14 and 14 New York Jets. That season is over, but we still got to recap it really quick. This season was a doozy. The Jets lost their first 13 games with and without Sam Darnold. Some was Joe Flacco, some was Sam, but 13 losses in a row were ugly. It was a hard schedule, but eventually they find their first win against a playoff Browns team and then continue that to put up a winning streak against a playoff Rams team and then close up the season with a loss to New England. 2-14, and 14, it happened out of nowhere. It was the worst you've ever seen, and then it was like they're starting to put something together and now we don't get Trevor Lawrence, and then it was just losing the division rivals and the season's over, and now we fired our coach and we got a new one. It was a bit of a whirlwind this year, but it wasn't a good type. It was just uh, more like a, more of a flush down a toilet than a whirlwind, I guess. Same shape, 
and physics, but not as good. We uh, we struggled across the board. We've been talking about the team, the team stats and all that stuff all year long, but now we've got our official final end-year rankings. Every single team has played 16 games. Thank goodness we made it this year in 2020. Every team playing 16 games. That's awesome. But how did the Jets fare in terms of, you know, offensive stats and defensive stats compared to the rest of the league? Well, you would think with Adam Gase, an offensive head coach, that we would probably be amazing in offense, right? Let's start there. Yards per game. The Jets finish 32nd in the league, 279.9 yards per game. We didn't even average 300 yards per game as a team. That was split up by passing yards per game, 174, which was 31st in the league, and rushing yards per game, 105, which was 23rd in the league. That was horrible offense. And if you thought that was bad, the scoring, 32nd in the league, 15 points per game. The next least points per game was 17 by, believe it or not, the New York Giants. So something was going on in MetLife Stadium this year. Not too good. Not many touchdowns for uh, home teams at MetLife, but 15 points per game? I mean, you want to talk about a 2-14 and 14 record and how disappointing that is, but how about watching a team that scores, maybe, if you're lucky, like a touchdown and two field goals? You don't even have stuff to cheer for. You're watching entire halves of football with no scoring. Few first downs. It was a very tough season to watch. It'd be better to be 2-14 and 14 and, you know, put up 22 points per game and maybe just things didn't fall your way here and there, but there were just games that just didn't show up. There were games they couldn't get anything going, shutouts, and it was just, it was brutal. Adam Gase was a failure of an offensive coach. He was a failure of a head coach. Our offense was, really, if you look at the metrics, the worst in the league, and he's gone. So it'll get better. I know it will. I know for sure that with Mike LaFleur and the new guys we have on offense, our new head coaches, Miles Austin, Benton, and the crew, that this is going to be better than the worst offense in the entire NFL. I don't care who's playing quarterback for the Jets. As long as it's not Luke Falk or David Fales, it's going to be better than 32 because Adam Gase is gone, and that in itself is net positive. Going over to the defensive side of the ball, which was mostly run by Greg Williams, but after he was fired following the Raiders game, Frank Bush took over. And for the most part, it was better than the offense, but it still wasn't very good. Yards against the Jets this year, 24th in the league at 387 per game. So you notice there that teams are scoring or getting roughly 110 more yards per game than we were. Yikes. Passing yards, we gave up 28th. Not a good pass defense. 275 passing yards per game. When you look at that number 275, you're like, really? It felt like every single quarterback put up 400 yards. I would guess that we gave up like 320 passing yards per game. But no. When the season was over, 275 per game. Rushing yards, this was the lone bright spot for the Jets. 112 rushing yards per game against the Jets, which still seems like a kind of high number. But that was 12th best in the league, so actually top half of the league for something. So that's something that we've always kind of been, since I've been a kid, the Jets have been good at stopping the run and running the ball. That's kind of just what we do. This year, 12th, it's still not good, but it was our best phase of the game, if you will. And scoring, we get up the 26th most points in the league, 28.6 points per game compared to our 15 points per game. We lost by more than 13 points per game on average. 
two scores, 13 points. No way you can gut it. I mean, this is a 2-14 and 14 team. Bad season. Bad ranks. One thing that was, like, interesting and not that bad for a team that won two games, turnover margin, net zero. The plus-minus in terms of turnovers and giveaways, or takeaways and giveaways, was zero. We had 19 takeaways, 19 giveaways. That was broken up into 10 interceptions for the team and nine fumble recoveries, and then throwing 14 interceptions and only losing five fumbles. So a good mix for the Jets, taking the ball away. 19 is not so bad. I was really proud of that five lost fumbles number because including quarterbacks, like an entire team, five fumbles for the year. Chris Herndon, it feels like, probably had seven of them. So pretty good. Way to hold on to the ball. If they did one thing right, that was it. And who knows what the numbers could have looked like if they didn't. So that is our team rankings for the Jets this year. A brutal year. One that we can put behind us, but one that we do have to just get closure on and recap just for the sake of being Jets fans and just kind of putting a pin on this one. Because once this is over, we are moving on. We are full sail ahead towards 2021 season and beyond. But before that, we got to take a quick pit stop at the cooler for a little what's on tap. That is right, folks. This is what's on tap. And today I am drinking nothing special. It is Mickey season. Michelob Ultra. You can buy them in a 30 rack. They are tall, they are skinny, and they are locale. I put these babies back. They are great playoff beers because if you're going to be watching playoffs, you know, wild card weekend or so, three games Saturday, three games Sunday, national championship, college game on a Monday after that. I mean, you're watching so much football, you need something that you can hydrate with and drink all day long because you're not going to have time to drink water through all that. So what do you get? You get some Mickey. So I got an upstairs beer fridge loaded up with mix. And, uh, yeah, I've drank them on here before. This is just what we're going with today. The one new kind of uh, wrinkle in this whole thing is this brewmate. I call them brumates. It's like a permanent koozie that you can slide your beer into. And you're thinking to yourself, Mickey's don't fit in a regular koozie or like a Yeti regular 12-ounce koozie. But this actually fits the exact same profile of any spiked seltzer. So, Fiance Shannon has a spiked seltzer Permanent koozie, and I get to use it for my Mickeys. Not the classiness she was originally expecting, but we do what we got to do. Moving over to the player rankings, and I want to move kind of quickly through this because I'm going to be honest with you. The Jets have no pro bowlers. None. We went through the team stats, player stats every single week this year. They were minimal. The team ended with 31 sacks. You're looking for 40 on a year. There's not a lot there. The team had 10 interceptions. You know, we passed for 16 touchdowns as a team. We ran for nine. We had 25 touchdowns scored this year in 16 games. Nobody had 1,000 yards rushing or receiving. Nobody had 2,500 yards passing. There was not a lot to get to when you talk about these numbers. A lot is very forgettable, and with all that cap space, all that draft capital, a lot of these guys aren't even going to be here next year. So we'll talk about the guys who had good seasons and really stood out or players who you know, are big headline guys that we just need to talk about. We're going to move past a lot of the other ones because eh, not so great. Talking to the quarterback, most important spot, that was a job that was split between Sam Darnold and Joe Flacco. Right, Sam started like 12 games, Joe starts four. By most metrics, other than completion percentage, Joe actually had a better season. Not yards per game and not completion percentage, but he had more touchdowns, a better quarterback rating, was sacked less per play, more yards per pass, and so 
from that respect, you're like, shoot, that is not what we were expecting because Joe Flacco at this point in his career, after what we saw with him in the Broncos, like he is not a top-tier quarterback. He's probably not even at that NFL average. He's probably slightly below right now because he can't get out of his own way in terms of movement and his arm's not what it used to be. But when you look at Sam Darnold compared to him, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. We were expecting a lot from Sam. Uh, I specifically was expecting a lot from Sam. I thought that he could have 4,000 passing yards this year. I really, truly believed that. I forgot how horrible of an impact a man like Adam Gase could possibly have on an offense. Um, I know we're not at the running back portion of this right now, but I think just one interesting stat that would kind of remind you how, just how horrible and up his own butt Adam Gase was, was we knew that he wanted to get Frank Gore in here, right, as one of his guys from Miami and from his past coaching. So he gets Frank Gore in here. And at first we're like, you know what, we've got Le'Veon Bell and we drafted LaMichael Pirine. Frank Gore is probably going to be what, RB2, RB3, but he's going to be a good locker room presence. It's going to be really nice to have in the locker room because we got a lot of young players with good character. And just to see an established vet like Frank Gore in there will be good for them. Frank Gore has the 15th most rushes in the entire NFL. The 15th most, the oldest running back in the entire league who's hardly even on an NFL roster, running at a 3.5 yard per carry inefficient average, has the 15th most carries in the NFL. That totals the 30th in rushing yards because just because he gets 15th most carries does not mean he has the 15th most rushing yards because he was way more inefficient than everybody after him with less carries. They still had more yards, 14 of them. 15 of them. That is just how out of touch Adam Gase was with this offense. And that is exactly why someone like Sam Darnold was unable to flourish, unable to thrive. I almost want to take the entire Adam Gase coaching two years and just throw out everything for evaluation of Sam Darnold. I thought his first year with Todd Bowles as head coach and Jeremy Bates' offensive coordinator, he showed a ton of promise and he showed a ton in college. But what Adam Gase created as an offense and a system and the way that he ran these plays and didn't put Sam Darnold in a position to succeed and do what he does best, be creative, throw on the run, make plays up, play loose. He made him think all season about horrible, dumb plays, made him overthink everything, play really tight and rigid, and made the guy second-guess almost everything. I feel horrible for what happened to Sam Darnold, and I don't know what's going to happen with him moving forward. He's either going to be the quarterback of the Jets, he's going to be the backup quarterback of the Jets, or we're going to trade him for future draft picks and draft a quarterback or have a guy like Deshaun Watson here. Sam Darnold's playing career is not over. And I am positive that what he does for the remainder of his career will be better than what he did during the Adam Gase era. This will be the low of Sam Darnold's career. 2,200 passing yards this year in 12 games. That's 202 yards per game. Nine touchdowns. 11 interceptions, sacked 35 times, and had a quarterback rating of 72. Not a good season. 60% completion percentage just about, finished at 59.6. That's actually a decent mark for him, and an improvement over his past, but it wasn't, uh, you know, and we won two games. It wasn't good. The evaluation's almost impossible. Tough year to watch Sam. Uh, we saw him get knocked around, you know, sacked 35 times, injured multiple times, coming back in, playing injured, trying to lead the team. I mean, he even ran a few times this year. He finished with 217 rushing yards and two touchdowns, which is a decent little mark for him. But, you know, a really tough season no matter how you slice it. 
So nine touchdowns passing for him. Joey mentioned he had six touchdowns, three interceptions. I don't think Joe's going to be back. I don't think he should be back. We drafted this guy, Captain Morgan, James Morgan, and potentially he can be the backup. That's kind of what he was brought in to be, a project guy who could have his backup. But uh, I don't know what's going to happen. And you could have Sam be the backup as well. It just doesn't feel like Joe has a future with this team. He was definitely, I want to say thank you to him, because he was definitely so much better to watch than any of the Luke Falk, Trevor Simeon, or David Fales games from 2019. When you go over to the running game, we talked about Frank Gore. He finishes with 653 yards, 3.5 yards per carry on 187 attempts. He had two touchdowns scored and lost a fumble. His longest run of the entire season was 17 yards. There were 143 NFL players with longer runs than Frank Gore. Not only was he inefficient in terms of getting yards, but he also didn't have the ability to pick up big plays. So he didn't have the ability to really consistently get like four yards, but he also had no ability to get anything longer than 17 yards. We're hardly ever going to pick up a first down when he runs the ball. On 187 carries, he had 32 first downs. Ty Johnson actually had the second most rushing yards on the team, and he only ran the ball 54 times. He ran at 4.7 yards per carry. He had a touchdown, and he had a pretty good season. I was pretty happy with everything that I saw from Ty Johnson this year. You had another 99 receiving yards and a touchdown there on 16 catches, and for a guy who you pick up basically off the streets from the Detroit Lions scrap heap, he's potentially going to be on the Jets for the next couple of years because he's got a contract. He's not going to be paid all that much, and he shows some spurt. He was the most efficient running back for the Jets other than the other guy who hardly got any carries, Josh Adams, who finishes this year with 29 carries and 157 yards and two touchdowns rushing himself. So Josh Adams and Ty Johnson really were the best running backs that we played this year. Le'Veon Bell, horrible, 3.9 yards per carry. LaMichael Pirine, he had 232, one touchdown, 3.6 yards per carry. The only guys that were over four is Ty Johnson, Josh Adams. And even Kalen Balash actually was 4.3. So the running game there, we finished with 1,600 rushing yards and nine rushing touchdowns. Not great. Receiving... You were hoping, you know, we never have 1,000-yard receivers. We had that one season, 2015, where Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker were just lights out, and that was so much fun, and we broke all sorts of New York Jets franchise passing records. But that was just an outlier season. Other than that, we struggled to get 1,000-yard receivers. We struggled to get 800-yard receivers. Our leading receiver was Jameson Crowder, who is a really good player and had a great season. But he had 59 catches, 699 yards, only played 12 games, so he could have gotten that 1,000 yards. He definitely could have. But six touchdowns, that was the real nice thing there. The guy had 32 first downs himself on 59 catches, and he had six touchdowns. Couldn't quite get to 700 receiving yards, but for a slot guy playing 12 games, Jameson Crowder gave it his all and was dynamo. I love that guy. Prashad Perriman, he was okay. You know, he had 30 receptions on 60 targets, 505 yards there. Three touchdowns. He did have a couple big plays, a couple big gainers this year to get those touchdowns. He was unreliable as expected. He missed a few games himself, only played in 12, had some bad drops here and there. But when you get on the ball at the right time, he's quick, he's fast, he can burn a team. He's got weaknesses for sure. He's kind of a poor man's Robbie Anderson, who if you look at his numbers from last season, you know what he finished with this year? Robbie Anderson playing with Teddy Bridgewater and P.J. Williams finishes with 95 catches, 1,096 yards. 
he only had three touchdowns, so still not really getting in the end zone that much. But 95 catches and 1,096 yards, that's more than just a straight-line burner. They used him more. Adam Gates didn't use him right. Go figure. Braxton Berrios was the backup slot man who appeared in every single game and is a very reliable backup depth option. He had 394 yards and three touchdowns on 37 catches. I was happy with his performance. Denzel Mims, he actually played in nine games, only had 23 catches. You want to see the ball in his hands more. He didn't get a single touchdown, which was a bummer. But he was fourth in the team in receiving yards at 357. He was just a rookie. And like I said, he only played half the season. So I think that moving forward, he's going to be in a much better spot to succeed. It's important to remember that we don't have many good outside wide receiver options. And there was a lot of times that you had guys like Stephon Gilmore, Jalen Ramsey, Tredavious White. You got good cornerbacks lined up against Denzel Mims. And so it was tough for him. Denzel Ward was lined up on him at the end of the year. He's not ready for that stuff yet. You know, you need another guy next to him on the other side who can pull some of the pressure away. And he is going to flourish in this league. I still believe it. But uh, we didn't get enough opportunity to see it this year. And I think next year we will. The tight ends didn't put up much. Chris Herndon ended up with three touchdowns, which is tied for second most in the team with Perriman and Berrios. 287 yards. It's not a lot of yardage, but he really did start to get better after his horrific, horrific first half of the season. He did start to put together some better performances, had some good games, actually won a player of the game in there for offense. And being that he's still under his rookie contract, I think he's a guy that we could potentially move forward with. You'd maybe want to have one guy ahead of him on the depth chart. But Ryan Griffin finishes with under 100 yards receiving. So does Daniel Brown. Trevon Wesco, of course, also finishes under 100 yards receiving. So, like, you're getting nothing out of your tight ends. And considering Chris Herndon actually did the most. So the rest of the guys, not much to talk about there. One guy that was a huge disappointment this year was Vincent Smith, who I picked as one of my X-Factors for the Jets this year, the guy that could potentially come in and be like that wide receiver four, establish himself, put together a good season, he finished the year with uh, one catch for 13 yards. That's it. One catch for 13 yards is what we got from Vincent Smith. He was absolutely not the X-factor for this team. He was a non-factor for this team. So we're going to move over to the defensive side of the ball. You want to talk about tackles? Neville Hewitt was the boy. Neville Hewitt finished with the ninth most tackles in the league. And if you talk solo tackles, because Neville Hewitt need no help, he had the fifth most solo tackles in the league. Neville Hewitt has put together a great year. He definitely has limitations. He's not a guy that you want to just definitely say, like, we're locking him in as inside linebacker number one, and that's it. You know, we do have C.J. Mosley coming back, and Neville Hewitt uh, is going to be a free agent, so we'll see what we do with him. He's a good guy to have on a team. He absolutely can play very good minutes. He's not a guy you really want to, like, build around and lock up for that number one spot for years. But a good season from him and one of the best tacklers I've seen, as I've said. When it comes to sacks, Quinnen Williams was the guy. Played in 13 games this year, Quinnen Williams gets seven sacks and leads the team. Nobody else had more than three and a half. That was Terrell Basham had three and a half sacks. Quinnen Williams had double that, playing from a defensive tackle position in the middle. Right, he's not blitzing. He's not catching people off guard. He's getting double, double teamed and running right up the middle where the quarterback can see him. But he's damn good at it. He had 13 and a half tap, tackles for loss. Nobody else had double-digit tackles for loss in this team. Quinnen Williams was the guy. Into two forced fumbles. And it was actually, you know, top six on the team in tackles with 55 tackles. I mean, this is a guy that you are looking forward to building around. And I'm sure that he's one of those guys Salah was looking at because Salah has built good defensive lines in San Francisco. 
is known for like turning guys like Kerry Hyder, who's an aging veteran, just having one of the best seasons of his career. And it doesn't matter if it's Nick Bosa or DeForest Buckner or Solomon Thomas or Kerry Hyder. He's going to get stuff out of him. And Quinton Williams is going to be one of those guys that he loves to use. Other than that, looking at the defense, our leading guy in terms of interceptions, Pierre Desir finished with three. This guy was cut after nine games, was our man of the year, which was a funny running joke in the Jets franchise um, because, like, our man of the year is not even on the roster. Yeah, that was Pierre Desir. Quick, short-lived stint in New York. Marcus May had a really good year. He ended up with a couple sacks. He had a couple interceptions, 88 tackles. Really liked what I saw from him. He even had a couple forced fumbles. So it wasn't like a Jamal Adams stat line, but the way that he covers the field and takes off the big play really like shrinks the field down. We did not get burned for a lot of big plays this year. Considering how big the offensive uh, production was against us, a lot of it was short intermediate passes because when Marcus May's back there, there's not much you could do. And uh, other than that, really like you look at it, you're like, okay, Drell Basham had a pretty good year. I want to give a shout out to Foley Fadikasi because for a backup, this guy's absolutely awesome. He had eight and a half tackles for a loss, which is the second most in the team playing from a defensive tackle position and not even starting. So Foley Fadikasi, you know, great work there. Brian Poole was playing great football when he was playing, but he only played nine games. Bless Austin was up and down, only played 11 games. I mean, we had a lot of injuries this year. One guy that didn't show up, Jordan Jenkins. He finished this year with two sacks. Jordan Jenkins finished with two sacks. This guy's supposed to come in here and get seven, eight sacks. That's another prediction I had wrong. I think I said Jenkins would have, what, like eight, nine sacks most of his career. We signed him for that one-year deal, and thank goodness, because we don't need him for more. Bradley McDougald. Jamal Adams, replacement safety, coming over in that trade package from Seattle. He played seven games this year. Didn't impress me, and he's gone. One other guy that had a great year, John Franklin Myers. He had a nice little year. He ended up with, uh, you know, a few sacks himself. He had three. Nate Shepard coming on strong towards the end of the year. Two and a half sacks for him. Bryce Huff made his presence here and there. We've got good defensive players. Kyle Phillips only played in seven games. He would have had more impact. He's a decent player. Jabari Zaniga. Trash player, didn't do much this year. And then um, Frankie Louvu as well, getting his presence done on that defensive front kind of thing. These are the guys that Robert Sala is going to love to work with. It's going to be a nice little group for him. When he's got John Franklin Myers and Quinn and then Foley Fadakasi, just do me one favor and get Henry Anderson out of here. That guy had one. He should have been just doghouse player of the year because Chris Herndon was the doghouse player of the year for the first eight weeks for sure. But Henry Anderson, like, he never, he should have been in there the whole time. He never came out. At least Chris Herndon, like, started going up towards the end. Henry Anderson had a quick moment on special teams and then just stayed at the bottom. So not much more to talk about on that defensive side of the ball. I'm going to talk special teams. It was a committee of special teamers returning the ball. Uh, Braxton Burris was our punt returner all year long, but he didn't really return all that many in the punt return game. You know, he only brought back 10 was 8.6 average, but he's not even doing one per game. The guy's doing like almost half of a return per game. We didn't force that many punts, but he was a little bit uh, more tentative in his decisions, I think. 24 fair catches. So nothing crazy there, but when it came to uh, return game, Corey Ballantyne was probably the best one, but he only played in six games. We didn't get enough of a taste of him, and I'm not sure if he's going to be back because he's one of those guys taking up a cornerback roster spot just to do that decent returning. Yeah, probably not going to happen. Our kicking game went back and forth between Sam Ficken, Sergio Castillo, and then ended with Chase McLaughlin. The guy that kicked the best in terms of percentage was honestly probably Sam Ficken because he was 13 for 15, 
Way better better than Castillo, who was 61%, but Ficken was missing extra points. Guy was 80% on extra points. You've got to be 90% on extra points and 75-plus percent on field goals, and he just wasn't there on the extra points. You need those. Those are free points. So we did sign Ficken to a reserve deal. I don't think that he should be back as the kicker. I've been saying for a long time we need an established good kicker. I hope that's the route that they go. And uh, it was tough to watch the kicking game this year. Again, the second year in a row. Braden Mann, rookie punter, he had an all right year. He was just all right. There were moments that he made great tackles. There were moments that he kicked bombs. There were moments where he had shanks. And there were very few moments where he got it within the five-yard line. One of those nice rolling kicks that your deep or special teams unit is just there to down it, and you're like, ha-ha, we stopped them here. So that's what you want to see more of from him. Now we got to give out our awards, the big award ceremony. Talking about offensive player of the game. We were giving offensive star of the game every single week this season. We have a defined winner, offensive player of the game this year, with the most four offensive player of the games. You guessed it, one, Jamison Crowder. Four games he stood out as the best player on the field on offense. And you can probably remember those games too because he was getting 100 yards, and seven catches, and a touchdown. It was happening, and he was making it go. When the rest of the offense, you know, we're throwing for 200 or 180 yards per game. He's getting 100 yards himself sometimes. Honorable mention, Makai Becton had three offensive player of the games. And when you look at it, Two guys that had two, Braxton Berrios, who made something out of nothing when nobody was playing on the offense and we're playing guys like Josh Malone and Jeff Smith. Braxton Berrios sneaks in, wins two players of the game, and Ty Johnson, same thing. When you've got Le'Veon Bell, Frank Gore, and Michael Pirine not getting all the, the lion's share, Ty Johnson comes in, he's able to get two players of the game himself. So those are honorable mentions, but Jameson Crowder is our 2020 Offensive Player of the Year. So how about a big round of applause for Jameson Crowder? Going over to the defensive side of the ball, we had a clear defensive player of the year as well. That is one, Quinn and Williams. And you guessed it. He had four defensive players of the game. Next most, Marcus May with two and a half. We did a split there at one point. Ashton Davis got half. Marcus May got a half because the safety play was really good. Basham had two. John Franklin Myers had two. Quinnen, again, establishing himself. And when you look at it, when we were talking about those guys, like when you think about the offense, who was the best looking through those names? Jameson Crowder was our best offensive player. Makes sense that he was the offensive player of the year. You know, we didn't give it to him because he was the best in the grand scheme of things. We gave it to him because he the most times stepped up in games. And Quinn Williams, same thing on defense. He's the guy you'd guess. Because more times than not, Quinn Williams was the best defensive player on the field. And that's why he's so darn good. I'm glad that we have him moving forward. So, round of applause. Quinn Williams, great season for that guy. Can't wait to see more. Special teams unit. This one is kind of funny. This was a tie because it's, it's and keep in mind, there's only like, you know, five noticeable people on a special teams unit. You got a kick returner, punt returner, kicker, punter, and a long snapper. You got a couple gunners in there as well, but that's about it. So, when it comes down to it, you really had a battle between Sam Ficken and Braden Mann. And because Braden Mann is going to be on the team in the future, and Sam Ficken uh, actually had doghouse player of the games against him, which kind of is like a net negative, we're going to give special teams player of the year to rookie punter Braden Mann. Congratulations, Braden Mann. Heck of a season. Honorable mention to Corey Ballantyne, who mentioned the best returner on the team. He had 
two special teams players a game for good returns. And then doghouse. You want to talk about the doghouse, the players that really pissed us off more than any. We had a domination here by one, wait for it, Chris Herndon, who started the year with, I believe, nine consecutive doghouse players of the game and then had one more after that. I think Vincent Smith went in there and broke it up one time and then it went right back to Herndon. But then after that, he slowed it down. And as I mentioned, he did win one offensive player of the game later on, but Herndon stole the show. I mean, he played worse than you could have imagined early on. He was not catching the ball. And when he was, he was fumbling it. He wasn't making any impact on offense. So a big thumbs down to Chris Herndon for the first half of the season, probably the first 75%. But, you know, we'll give him one thumbs up for the last few weeks and the sort of progression that we saw from him as the season went on. So at least he didn't finish there. You don't want to end the season with 10 straight doghouses because then people are thinking like, you have no shot of ever playing in this league again. But if you get him out of the way early, then maybe we can chalk it up as like rust from him missing so much time with the DUI and the injuries. Perhaps that's it. The only other person with multiple doghouse players of the game, Sam Darnold with two. The one thing I thought was interesting was looking at the rookies. We had nine and a half stars of the game from the rookies this year. Braden Mann had four. Becton himself had three. Mims had one. Bryce Hall had one. And Ashton Davis had a half. So when you look at it, those are some guys that we can work with moving forward. That's kind of the big the big five from this class as well, right? Mann, Becton, Mims, Hall, and Davis. Those are the guys that we're expecting to get a lot of from the future. And part of the, you know, that Joe Douglas super draft, those are the names. And it makes sense because those are the players that stepped up and made an impact. So I am done with my awards. The award ceremony has officially ended. Congratulations to everybody who was nominated for an award or received an award, of course. And uh, for the doghouse players of the game, I know you didn't want to be mentioned, but let's try to work on that and not be a part of that next year. I think that's really all I got for this episode. Um, you're probably wondering what's coming next. I'm still doing bi-weekly episodes, so I'm going to come back in two weeks on that Tuesday. And what I want to talk about is start looking through the roster and talking about who's going to be a free agent and, uh, you know, where are the big holes going to be? We've got to start doing some free agency evaluations because we're going to be doing this thing. I think it's going to be February at that point. And believe it or not, like early mid-March is when free agency begins. And so we're actually not going to have that much time to really prep for it if we don't get going on it now. So we got to talk about the state of the team, who's under contract, who's not under contract, who's potentially going to get cut. Joe Douglas's big decisions coming up and uh, we'll follow it there. And of course, any other big news that comes out. Hopefully by then we will have hired maybe a special teams coach, maybe a defensive coordinator. There's a lot of good stuff that could potentially be coming. When you do them every two weeks like this, you have plenty of opportunity for new content. So, as always, I want to thank you all for joining me on this podcast. Feels good to wrap up the 2020 season. As horrible as it was, we have officially put a pin on it, wrapped it, and then shipped it down the river. It is gone, out of sight, out of mind, moving on to 2021. New York Jets, better days ahead. Welcome to the Jets, Robert Sala. I can't wait to get going. And that's all we got for today. So long, everybody. I'm Dan Burnham, and this is The Jet Life.